All right, fellas, you are listening to the Gird Up Podcast. My name is Charlie Ungamak. I'm the founder and curator of Gird Up. Um, and this is part two in a four-part, no, this is part three in a four-part series um, talking about masculinity. The first part talked about how um, the world defines manhood and masculinity. Part two talked about how um, my Heavenly Father defines masculinity and helps me um, understand masculinity. Today we're talking about Jesus and how Jesus defines my masculinity. Um, before we get into that, I just want to share with you a thank you, man. Thanks for being a part of this. Uh, thanks for being a part of this ministry. Thanks for um, searching out and reaching out um, and trying to find ways and resources to become a better man, the Christian man that God has created you to be, that godly man that we need in the world today. Um, this project started when I was a, a young man looking around saying, man, I'm not the man I want to be. I'm not becoming the man I want to be. And I don't see a lot of men in my life on a daily basis that I want to be like. Uh, and so I began to pursue Christian manhood. I began to pursue godly manhood. And this is this is what has resulted from it. Um, so big thanks to the men in my life who've been able to help with this project, who've been able to help me grow um, and have been a better understanding of who I am in God's eyes and, and who uh, Jesus really is. Um, big shout out, first of all, to... Um, Bread for Beggars. Now, Bread for Beggars is an online resource that puts out all kinds of cool stuff. They um, sponsor a lot of people. They, they give a lot of people an opportunity to be seen. If you're not familiar with Bread for Beggars, um, it's an online platform to share all kinds of different uh, ministry content from artwork um, and videos to blogs um, to podcasts. There's all kinds of stuff on there. Um, go type in Bread for Beggars and just check it out. See what's on there. You'll see us on there. You'll see all kinds of other things on there as well. Uh, what a great resource for the people of God, especially in this time when we're socially distanced from each other, where a lot of us are separated. Um, this episode of the Grid Up Podcast is sponsored by the Christ for Disciples Podcast. The Christ for Disciples Podcast is put out by Pastor Paul Steinberg. He's a pastor, of course. He's got his doctorate, and he himself is a father of five sons. He's an expert on being a dad. Um, and every week he puts out five podcasts that... Apply God's Word to Raising the Next Generation. So take 10 minutes each weekday to listen to the Christ for Disciplers podcast and get direction and gospel power to disciple the youngest generation. Subscribe to the Christ for Disciplers podcast at ChristForDisciplers.com on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Again, that's ChristForDisciplers.com. Without any further ado, I hope that you're healthy and strong. God's blessings. Um, here we go in today's podcast. You are listening to the Gird Up Podcast. To gird up is an ancient way of preparing oneself for hard work or a battle ahead. Our work is to reclaim masculinity in the modern world and to live out our calling as men of God. Here you will find a community of believers working hard to become the men that God created us to be. Now it's time to roll up your sleeves and let's get to work. All right, dudes. Last time we talked about um, how knowing my father, um, whether you want to call him Father God or our Heavenly Father, um, but how knowing God as Father shapes my masculinity. Uh, if you haven't listened to that, I would go and listen to that one before you listen to this one. Uh, and there was actually an episode even before that that talked about... Um, how what the world tells me about being a man is inaccurate and wrong um, and, and why we should be concerned about um, living 
our lives as Christian men, not just living as men the way the world defines uh, masculinity. So really, not letting the world define my masculinity, but letting Scripture and letting my Heavenly Father, my Creator, define my masculinity instead. So that's what we're studying. Last time we talked about um, how God as Father defines my masculinity. Today we're going to talk about Jesus. Um, and we're going to start in a place that uh, might be interesting. Uh, it's a place that we've actually talked about before. We're going to start talking about Kanye. Because um, all things lead back to Kanye West, right? There's the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. I think there's like the um, three degrees of Kanye West. But anyway, um, when Kanye was put uh, putting out a gospel album for the first time a couple years ago, uh, actually it might be about a year ago now, um, he also put out a Christmas album. But when he was first putting out that gospel album, the Christian world was split into two big camps, right? One group just totally dismissed Kanye offhand as just another goon who's going to spend a year or two making his newfound, you know, talking about his newfound faith on, you know, David Letterman and all these different, you know, late night TV interviews. Um, and he was going to make a whole bunch of inspirational Jesus freak social media posts only to land right back into the tabloids, you know, in 18 to 24 months when he goes back to his old life and reverts back to, you know, all the things he used to do, <clears throat> Justin Bieber. Um, but, you know, it, it's a very real fear. And a lot of people just dis- dismissed him offhand. And, and there was another group of Christians that immediately just jumped on the Kanye train and praised God for bringing such a high-profile artist to faith, somebody who has millions of people in his audience, even billions perhaps, um, and, and for someone um, whose testimony could reach millions and, frankly, even billions of people worldwide. Um, because he is who he is. But the one response that really stuck out amid all the noise and caught my ear, um, and I have talked about this before on the podcast, that that one interview that really stuck out to me was was done by Lecrae. Now, Lecrae is a well-known Christian rap artist. He's one of those guys that says, I'm a Christian and I'm a rapper. It doesn't necessarily mean I'm a Christian rapper. I don't always rap about Jesus. He's a great dude um, with a good understanding of Scripture, and he's a very interesting perspective on um, Christianity in black culture and in black America. Um, so if you don't know him, I would suggest looking him up. But what he said um, was the following. Often, people can't imagine people from the hip-hop community finding Christ. We see this very Americanized Western Jesus and not a Middle Eastern man who can relate to the struggles that usually affect us. So this could be an opportunity, this Kanye thing, this could be an opportunity for more people um, to see that we love Jesus and 808s in fashion and contribute to culture. People could see themselves in Kanye, and therefore they can see themselves as Christ followers. Did you hear what he said? He said, many people can't imagine themselves as Christians, but they can relate to Kanye. So when Kanye professes his faith, he makes it possible for many other people to see themselves as Christians. Lecrae also implies that the Jesus that you and I see here in the modern Western world isn't necessarily the Jesus of the Bible. And that this Western, modern Jesus is difficult to relate to. The question is, is he right? Is he on to something? To explore this, we need to take a second and think about the images of Jesus that we usually see around us. I just typed uh, Jesus into Google Image, right? So I did a little Google Images search (laughs) for Jesus. And overwhelmingly, what I see are pictures of a pasty white guy with light brown hair and this weird mystical look on his face. Like he's kind of staring off into the distance and into a corner. Um, Honestly, 
he he looks like he might be smoking something, right? Like he, he looks, he's got that look about him where he's just kind of, he's not all with it. He's not really on earth the way humans ought to be. Um, I love the way John Eldridge talks about it in his, in his talks and in his book, Biblical Outlaw, or uh, Beautiful Outlaw. I love the way he, he talks about it. Um, I believe he calls it Cotton Candy Jesus, right? But there's this this picture of a guy with this crazy hair, right? He looks like he'd be on a on the cover. He looks like he'd be a cover model for Pantene or something, right? Like this new men's conditioner or something like that. There's this just effeminate quality about him, right? Um, he's always glowing or floating or um, there's a lot of Jesus pictures where he has blue eyes and flawless skin. Um, there's even a few where he's got like blonde hair and blue eyes or he's got rainbows flowing out of him or something, right? Uh, um, overwhelmingly, the pictures that we have of Jesus, the paintings in particular that we have of Jesus, are far from masculine. Um, most of these paintings are barely human, um, and and very very few paint a picture that's actually compatible with the Palestinian Jew who was a carpenter and a traveling rabbi that we meet in Scripture. Um, but does it really matter? Is the question, right? Um, does it really matter how Jesus is painted in art and portrayed on the screen? Does it really make a difference if Jesus looks like an alien? Why does it matter? It's simple. Scripture declares Jesus to be the author and perfecter of our faith, the perfect man. And Scripture commands us to be imitators of Christ. Our images of Jesus and our understanding of who and what God in Jesus is, because remember, we only serve one God. He's three in one. So we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the fullness of God, but we're also talking about the person of God in Jesus, right? Which is confusing. It's not something we understand, something we accept by faith. But when the Bible commands us to be imitators of Christ, the Bible is talking about us knowing who and what God is and living like him, right? Jesus serves as the cornerstone of being a godly man. It also, I'm going to I'm going to state that again so it's really clear. <laughs> our images of Jesus, our understanding of who and what God in Jesus is, serve as one of the cornerstones of being a godly man. It also, when Jesus is portrayed poorly, can easily become a stumbling block to those who are weak in faith, for those people who have weak faith. Why would I, as a man, want to join a church that tells me to to imitate a guy who's weak, frail, effeminate, pale, otherworldly, passive, spineless, and soft? Why would I want to join a church that tells me to imitate and be like a nice guy Jesus? Is that really what I want to be as a man? Is that really what it means to be a man? Of course it's not. Of course it's not. When we distort Jesus into something and someone that he's not, we lose sight of who and what Jesus really is. And along with losing Jesus, we lose our own identities. So who is Jesus really? Who is Jesus for real? I love um, a, a poem I came across by Ezra Pound. Again, he lived from 1885 to 1972. Um it's called The Ballad of the Goodly Fair. Now, before I read this poem, you need to understand that the word fair, F-E-R-E, um, is a word that would refer to a friend or a, a comrade, a compatriot, right? He's, he's one of the guys. He um, Maybe a mate would be a, a good word, right? He's a mate. Um, so Ezra Pound wrote the following words, probably from uh, the the viewpoint of Silent the Zealot, um, who, speaking, after, speaking after the... Uh, 
speaking after the crucifixion of Jesus. This is what Ezra Pound wrote. Have we lost the goodliest fare of all for the priests and the gallows tree? I, lover of brawny men, of ships in the open sea. When they came with a host to take our man, his smile was good to see. First let these go, quoth our goodly fare, or I'll see ye damned, says he. Ay, he sent us out through the crossed high spears, and the scorn of his laugh rang free. Why look ye, Why took ye not when I walked about alone in the town, says he. Oh, we drank his hail and the good red wine when we last made company. No cap and priest was the goodly fare, but a man of men was he. I have seen him drive out a hundred men with a bundle of cords swung free, that they took the highly and holy house for their own pawn and treasury. They'll not get him in a book, I think, though they write it cunningly. No mouse of the scrolls was the goodly fare. Aye, but he loved the open sea. If they think they have snared our goodly fare, they are fools to the last degree. I'll go to the feast, quoth our goodly fare, though I go to the gallows tree. He has seen me heal the lame and blind and wake the dead, says he. Ye shall see one thing to master all. Tis how a brave man dies on the tree. A son of God was the goodly fare that bade us his brothers be. I have seen him cow a thousand men. I have seen him upon the tree. He cried no cry when they drove the nails, and the blood gushed hot and free. The hounds of crimson sky gave tongue, but never a cry, cried he. I have seen him cow a thousand men on the hills of Galilee. They whined as he walked out calm in between, with his eyes like the gray of the sea. Like the sea that books no voyaging, with the winds unleashed and free. Like the sea that he cowed at Genezaret, with twey words spoke suddenly. A master of men was the goodly fair, a mate of the wind and sea. If they think they have slain our goodly fair, they are fools eternally. I have seen him eat the honeycomb since they nailed him to the tree. If we're going to know and see Jesus as he actually really is, we need to understand his ministry and the life that he lived. Jesus likely spent the first 10 years of his adulthood as a craftsman uh, and throughout, without any of the modern technology of trucks and power tools and table saws, even like metal screws and, screws and plywood, they didn't exist when Jesus was alive. Carpenters and craftsmen at the time of the Roman Empire worked hard, even harder than they do today. And carpenters and construction workers work very hard today. Um, but in the Roman Empire, they would have worked even harder. They had to be tough, strong, smart, and disciplined. They had to be men. And this is the crucible of masculinity in which Jesus is raised and lives his life before his ministry begins. This is where he grew up among men and as a man. Once Jesus began to preach and teach, it didn't get any easier. He would often walk thousands of miles every year just to get back and forth from Judah and Galilee. And we know that Jesus and his disciples often did not have a place to lay their heads. They, while traveling lived mostly a nomadic and even borderline survivalist ex existence. They would pick grain as they walked around along the road, and they probably, they likely, would have done some hunting or trapping meat along the way. They would sleep on the ground, they would build fires, and they would walk from sun up to sundown for days on end with limited food and water. Life as a traveling rabbi was not an easy thing. Right? We do know that he lived in towns. He lived in Capernaum and different places while he was there to preach. But the extensive traveling he did was incredibly difficult. 
It couldn't be done by a weak and floundering effeminate man. We also need to consider the men that Jesus attracted to himself, right? The kinds of men that Jesus called to be his disciples. He doesn't go and gather the soft religious elite around him and set up a seminary. He doesn't call the guys who are already in the, in the synagogues, right? He calls farmers and craftsmen and fishermen, the tough, weathered, and seasoned men like himself. Consider for a moment some of the rough and tough men that you know, right? The manliest men you know. Maybe they're war veterans or firefighters, farmers, mechanics. Think about guys like that that you know and ponder this. Would any of those men who you know to be real men, would any of these men be likely to leave everything and follow a soft, nice, effeminate, spineless, pacifist preacher? Absolutely not. No, they wouldn't. But this is exactly what all the men who followed Jesus did. They left everything behind and they followed a rabbi from the hills. It takes a presence and an authority. It takes a real man to command men as Jesus did. It takes a true man. And this does matter. The nature of our salvation is this. I am a sinful man, sinful from birth, even from conception and unable to... I was sinful. I'm sorry. Even from conception, I was sinful. And I've been unable to do what is good and right since the day I was born. And because of this, I deserve to die. I should die forever. But Jesus was not like me. He was perfect. He was a perfect man and he lived a perfect life, the kind of life that I should have lived. And he did it in my place as my substitute. God chooses to see Jesus' perfection instead of my imperfection. And therefore, God treats me and he looks upon me as he would look upon his own perfect child, as he looks upon Jesus. That is, in fact, now what I am. I am a child of God. And since this is the case, since it is true that Jesus took my place and was my substitute, Jesus has to be, in order to be my substitute, Jesus has to be a man just like me. By the nature of Jesus' substitution, if I ever fall into a temptation that Jesus himself did not overcome or experience, or a woundedness that he didn't deal with, uh, the substitution of Jesus for me falls apart. Imagine a Tupperware lid, right? Jesus is, <laughs> this is going to sound silly. Jesus's um, covering of my sins is like a Tupperware lid. Jesus' substitution in my place is like a Tupperware lid. It might be a perfectly legitimate lid and still have all the integrity with which it was made. But if it doesn't fit onto the container, it doesn't fit. If the container's the wrong shape, the lid is worthless. So also would Jesus' sacrifice be if he hadn't faced any and every temptation that you and I face today. Jesus is like a universal Tupperware lid. <laughs> it sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But Jesus is like a universal Tupperware lid. He fits over each one of our lives. His sacrifice for us works for all of us, right? Because he faced anything and everything, any temptation and every temptation that you and I face, he also faced every day of his life. And this, because Jesus faced all of these grievances and all these weaknesses and all these trials and all these temptations in our place, that means that Jesus is not a distant savior. He knows intimately all of our pain and struggles because he himself experienced every single one and even more. 
Jesus, who is God, does not leave me alone to figure it out or wait at a distance for the moment that I'm going to die and go to be with him. Jesus stands with me in my pain right now so that the relationship between us can be restored, so he can bring us back into intimacy with God. He did the work. Why would he leave now? Can you imagine a Navy SEAL sneaking hundreds of miles behind enemy lines to rescue a prisoner in the dead of night, and then when he gets there, instead of picking up the hostage and carrying him to safety, he just gives him a book and says, all right, this is how you're going to get out. Of course not. He stays with him, and he brings him safely home. This is Jesus. He doesn't just give us a book of rules and say, all right, this is how you get out of here. He is intimately with us. He is in our woundedness and in our brokenness with us. And he restores us to relationship with our Heavenly Father so that we might be with him for eternity. And remember, this isn't just part of God or a piece of God that broke off or a portion of God that was sent into the world. Jesus is the fullness of God. The fullness of God is acting on my behalf in my brokenness so that I may be united with him. Jesus is always with us. Now, you and I, most of us who are involved in this this podcast and this Gird Up project, um, we're from the younger generation. And so our generation had parents, most of us, this isn't an overarching thing by any means, but most of us had parents who sheltered in us and protected us, right? They kept us safe. They solved many of our problems for us. And the new generation, the, the kids who are coming up now, you know, had parents who are even more protective, right? They have, um, as teachers, we like to call some of these parents lawnmower parents, right? They're not even, like helicopter parents were bad enough. They were always there. But lawnmower parents clear the obstacles out of the way. They push a lawnmower out in front of the kids so that their child has an easy road to success, right? They avoid ever facing any kind of hardship and challenge as a kid. And many of us have this same view of God. We talked about last time that I, you know, God is simply father written large, right? We see God as we see see our parents. Well, we tend to see God the same way. We expect God to pave the way for us and make it easy and painless, but he doesn't. He never has. Our God doesn't keep us from being wounded and broken. He just joins us in our woundedness. And a lot of people get angry and confused about this. But think about the children of Israel on the way to the promised land. Their journey began in slavery and it began in forced labor in Egypt for over 400 years. That's where they were. They were waiting for a redeemer and they're waiting for God to come and intervene on their behalf. And when God set them free, he didn't just give them Egypt. He didn't just say, all right, now you can be the people in charge now. He also didn't just magically transport them to the promised land and say, all right, here's the, here's your stuff. He didn't do any of that. He guides them, first he guides them out of Egypt into the desert, and he leads them across the wilderness for months until they get to the edge of the promised land. And then after Israel doubts and takes a 40-year detour, he takes them into the promised land, but he doesn't just hand them the keys to the promised land and say, here, enjoy what I've given you. He makes them go into battle. He leads them himself into battle, and he empowers them to drive out their enemies and clear the land. He never gave them anything. He prepared the way for them, and he led them, but he didn't give them anything. He gave them the opportunity to follow him, to do as he commanded, and he blessed it. God doesn't lift us up out of hardship and into paradise. He lifts us up out of hell and gives us the opportunity to draw near and follow him. Remember, the wages of sin is death. Each one of us ought to be 
burning and rotting in hell for eternity separated from God. Instead of putting us there, he puts us here on the earth to give us the opportunity to draw near and follow him. He wants us to know and love and trust in him as we should. He even wants us to know the father whom he called Abba or daddy. He wants us to be intimate with God just like he is. When God was hanging, when Jesus, God, when Jesus was hanging on the cross dying, he didn't say the rosary. He didn't smile and quote some peaceful, happy scripture about deliverance or tally up his good works and hope that they were good enough. When Jesus was on the cross in blood, sweat, and agony, he screamed out an appeal to heaven. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out to his Abba, his daddy, right, with whom he is intimate as we are by his sacrifice. Jesus knew God intimately that he was like, he cried out, why have you forsaken me? Because he'd never been forsaken before. God had never been separated from him before. He had never been abandoned by God, just as you and I have never been abandoned by God. We have an intimacy with our Father, with the Creator, with God, because of Jesus' sacrifice. So let's be imitators of Christ, of Jesus. Let's be real men like Jesus and willingly walk with Him. Um, when we were kids, remember those, uh, those wristbands that they had that said WWJD, what would Jesus do? Now, for many Christians, they were worn as a reminder that each of us should strive to live as Jesus did, which, as far as it goes, is a good thing to do. It's true. But most of the folks who decided to embrace this theme missed the point entirely, finding themselves, for the most part, in one of two equally misguided camps. I think this is where kind of the root of us being weird about following Jesus comes from. Um, because the first camp encouraged children to live like Jesus did because that's what quote-unquote good kids do, right? Good kids. Good kids make Jesus happy by doing what God commands. And this is th this is nothing more than thinly veiled works righteousness. I must do good works in order to make God happy so that he'll make take me to heaven when I die. And this, of course, is a lie. It's not my good works that earn me a place in heaven. It's because of Jesus' sacrifice in my place that I can be confident that I myself will be in heaven when I die. And far from helping, such a message just places people who seek God in perpetual purgatory. It's this uncertain limbo where I'm always wondering if I've done enough to earn God's favor. That's it's not the way we want to live and it's not biblical. And there is a second group of people that encouraged young people to wear bracelets that said WWJD as a direct attack on traditional values and morals of the church. Now, certainly there are pharisaical churches and church leaders in the world who tell us to do things that the Bible never tells us to do, right? But this camp of people wearing WWJD bracelets preached a message of acceptance and niceness and social conformity, which veered far from the message of the gospel. And that's why many conservative groups and church leaders rejected the WWJD slogan, because the messaging associated with the bracelets were messages that were harmful and wrong, because they turned the focus of the believer away from Christ's sacrifice and towards my own righteousness, towards me being a good person, me being a nice guy. And that's not beneficial to young kids and young Christians. But I think um, this messaging to kids that being like Jesus isn't, is wrong, which is kind of what we were told, um, then painted a picture of us not being able to or even shouldn't try and be like Jesus. 
Um, Lillian Daniel, who now currently is the senior minister of First Congregational Church UCC in Glen Ellen, Illinois, and she's a popular author among her church body, penned the following. And I think this is some. This is kind of what. Um, a lot of young Christians believe. I have never been a fan of those WWJD bracelets where the initials stand for the question, what would Jesus do? They seem to imply that we should answer that question at every turn and that it should then influence our actions. What would Jesus do? Okay, then I will do exactly the same thing. But here's the news flash: You are not Jesus. You come into contact with someone sick. What would Jesus do? He'd perform a miracle. Are you going to do that? Are you going to, what if you run out of wine at a wedding? What would Jesus do? Well, he'd turn water into wine. Go ahead. And then try appearing in the sky with Moses and Elijah in the transfiguration. Try casting out demons. Try saving humanity through the resurrection. Does wearing that bracelet give you special powers? Good luck with that. And when he did engage questions of personal morality, he said nothing about sexuality, just saying no to drugs, donating to national public radio, or other pressing causes of our day. When it comes to personal morality, Jesus seems awkwardly stuck on telling us to give our money away and not to the sellers of what would Jesus do bracelets. But other than that, most of what he does is sort of supernatural and crazy and off limits to you and me, culminating in his suffering on the cross yet triumphing over death. In a world that says it's all about you, WWJD is a pretty humbling thought. This is heresy. These are lies. We have been bombarded since childhood, both intentionally and unintentionally, by both wicked false prophets like, <laughs> um, what's her name, like Lillian Daniel, the quote I just read, this is false prophecy. So we've been bombarded by false prophets and well-meaning ministers of truth alike that we don't want to and shouldn't try to be like Jesus because after all, we can't. And this is the message that many of us have received. It's just not what Jesus was all about. And it's not the message of the Bible. It's not what the Bible teaches. Of course, Jesus followed the Old Testament laws. And he particularly followed the Ten Commandments. And he did it perfectly. But he wasn't just perfect for the sake of being perfect. And he wasn't just perfect so that you and I can go to heaven. There's more to it than that. My dad said in a sermon pretty recently um, that he heard somebody preach once on the idea that Jesus loves me, this I know, and this is all I really want to know. We got to get past that. I have saving faith, but there's more to the picture. Paul encouraged the young believers in the early church to stop drinking spiritual milk and start eating spiritual meat. We need to get to the meat. And that's why Galatians 4 verses 4 through 7 says, uh, We also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In other words, you and I were slaves. Slaves to sin and slaves to the law. Our entire existence was for one purpose, to fulfill the law, to do what God commanded. And if we didn't do it perfectly, we'd face punishment and eternal death, i.e. we would face hell. But you and I are not slaves anymore. Because Jesus was perfect and because he fulfilled the law, it's no longer my job to fulfill the law and try to be perfect. 
And thank God for that because I can't be perfect. I can't be good. I can't be a good kid. As we said up above before, God chooses not to look upon my sinfulness, but to look on Jesus' perfection. He chooses to see me as his perfect son. Now, obviously, you and I aren't just going to keep on sinning, but our focus is no longer on being perfect. So if my goal isn't to be perfect, what is it that I should do? Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2 say, Be imitators of God, therefore, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In other words, we should love the way Jesus loved. We should live the way Jesus lived. We should do what Jesus did. And this is where it becomes important that each one of us must diligently and faithfully study the word of God. That we might always know, that you and I might always know exactly what it was that Jesus did and use his actions as a guide in our lives. When Jesus saw a woman condemned for adultery, he encouraged the men who condemned her to demonstrate compassion and he sternly warned her, the adulteress, to leave her life of sin. When his good friend Lazarus died, he comforted the man's sisters when he knew that Jesus and Judas I'm sorry when he knew that Judas and Peter were going to betray and deny him he pronounced forgiveness and compassion on them even before they actually did it even before it happened and when Jesus saw that the gentiles had no place to worship he made a whip of cords and he violently drove out the money changers and the salesmen from the temple courts. The stories in scripture go on and on and on. And it is your job to go and study those and read those and imitate Christ. Jesus was not some untouchable superhuman. He wasn't a demigod and he wasn't aloof and unable to sin. Jesus had every opportunity and even the ability to sin. But instead of sinning, he faced every temptation and weakness that you and I experience, and yet he never once wavered from the will of the Father, restoring our opportunity to be intimate with God the Father. He was here so that you and I can be restored to relationship with God the way we're supposed to be. And by the way, emotions fall into this. Emotions aren't bad. So often we as men don't want to be emotional, right? We, we run away from emotion. But emotions aren't bad. Jesus expressed plenty of emotion. Go ahead. Read the scriptures. Read about Jesus' emotions. And the emotion, I think, that most of us who have lost a picture, like a true picture of who Jesus was, right? What we, we, if, we, if we don't know who Jesus is, we start to doubt all these things, right? And we start to characterize them as something that they're not. And, and I think the emotion that most clearly shows that is anger, right? We tend to make statements like anger is bad. It's a sin to be angry. But Jesus on several occasions gets very, very angry, even violently angry. How can we, <laughs> how can this be? Scripture tells us that Jesus never sinned, but yet Jesus was angry. And again, we have to turn to the Bible to tell us. Scripture tells us in your anger, do not sin. Here's the answer. It's not the emotion itself which is sinful and wrong. It's not wrong to be angry. It's the action that often follows the anger, which is sin. When you're angry, don't sin. The anger emotion isn't a sin. What is a sin is the action that often follows it. Because when people get angry, they lose control and they do sinful things. Emotions are good and healthy, an important part of being a man. 
And when we look at Jesus, we start to understand that. What is the uh, action needs to imitate Jesus. Let your anger and let your action be righteous and walk with Jesus in everything. Live the way Jesus did. Jesus wasn't a soft and effeminate or otherworldly creature. And he was far from accommodating and spineless. He wasn't only like partly human. He wasn't otherworldly. He was a man. He was made of the same stuff as you and me. No buts about it. There is no like, but he whatever. Jesus was a man, a natural human man. Jesus was a better man than you and I. He was a perfect man, but such a distinction ought only to draw us closer to him, not farther away. People aren't driven away by good men. People don't flee from good men. They are drawn to good men. And with that picture of Jesus as the ultimate good guy, the ultimate good man, is it not easier to call him my dearest friend? We need to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is a man. You and I are men, and we ought to imitate him, just as Scripture tells us. <laughs> I hope that paints a picture for you. I hope that you get to know the Jesus that I get to know. And I hope that this continues to be a blessing for you. Rock on, fellas. Keep studying the Scripture. I hope you have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Gird Up Podcast. If you like what you're hearing on our podcast, make sure you're sharing it with friends and family, men in your life who you think need to hear our message. You can find us on social media, on Facebook under the Gird Up Podcast, and there's a Gird Up community as well there where you can interact with other men on the journey toward Christian manhood. You can find us on Instagram as girdup underscore like underscore a underscore man. If you'd like to help us bring our message to more men just like you all around the world, you can hit up our Patreon account. Type in www.patreon.com forward slash girdup. And finally, please leave a five-star rating or review on whatever platform you use to listen to our podcast, whether it's iTunes or Spotify. What that does is it helps us get more attention in the podcast world and bring more men to our message. Thank you again for listening to our podcast. Thank you for all the ways you support us and help spread the word. Until next time, go gird up and be the man that God created you to be.